0: Chapter 14, Part 1 of Struggles and Triumphs, or Forty Years' Recollections of P.T. Barnum, written by himself. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matt Benzing of Oxford, Ohio. Struggles and Triumphs of P.T. Barnum, Chapter 14, in England again part one in London the general again opened his levies in Egyptian Hall with undiminished success his unbounded popularity on the continent and his receptions by King Louis Philippe of France and King Leopold of Belgium had added greatly to his prestige and fame those who had seen him when he was in London months before came to see him again and new visitors crowded by the thousands to the generals levies besides giving these daily entertainments The general appeared occasionally for an hour, during the intermissions, at some place in the suburbs. And for a long time he appeared every day at the Surrey Zoological Gardens, under the direction of the proprietor, my particular friend, Mr. W. Tyler. This place subsequently became celebrated for its great music hall, in which Spurgeon, the sensational preacher, first attained his notoriety. The place was always crowded. And when the general had gone through with his performances on the little stage in order that all might see him he was put into a balloon which secured by ropes was then passed around the ground just above the people's heads some 40 men managed the ropes and prevented the balloon from rising but one day a sudden gust of wind took the balloon fairly out of the hands of half the men who had held on to the ropes while others were lifted from the ground and had not an alarm been instantly given which called at least 200 to the rescue, the little general would have been lost. In addition to other engagements, the general frequently performed in Douglas's standard theater, in the city, in the play Hop O' My Thumb, which was written for him by my friend Albert Smith, whom I met soon after my first arrival in London, and with whom I became very intimate. After my arrival in Paris, Seeing the decided success of Petite Pousset, it occurred to me that I should want such a play when I returned to England and the United States. So I wrote to Mr. Albert Smith, inviting him to make me a visit in Paris, intending to have him see this play and either translate or adapt it or write a new one in English. He came and stayed with me a week, visiting the vaudeville theater to see Petite Pousset nearly every night, and we compared notes and settled upon a plan for Hop o' My Thumb. He went back to London and wrote the play and it was very popular indeed. During our stay of three months at this time in Egyptian Hall, we made occasional excursions and gave exhibitions in Brighton, Bath, Cheltenham, Leamington and other watering places and fashionable resorts. It was at the height of the season in these places and our houses were very large and our profits in proportion. In October 1844, I made my first return visit to the United States, leaving General Tom Thumb in England in the hands of an accomplished and faithful agent who continued the exhibitions during my absence. One of the principal reasons for my return at this time was my anxiety to renew the museum building lease, although my first lease of five years had still three years longer to run. I told Mr. Olmsted that if he would not renew my lease on the same terms, for at least five years more I would immediately put up a new building, remove my museum, close his building during the last year of my lease and cover it from top to bottom with placards stating where my new museum was to be found. Pending an arrangement I went to Mr. A.T. Stewart who had just purchased the Washington Hall property at the corner of Broadway and Chambers Street intending to erect a store on the site and proposed to join him in building he to take the lower floor of the new store for his business, and I to own and occupy the upper stores for my museum. He said he would give me an answer in the course of a week. Meanwhile, Mr. Olmsted gave me the additional five years lease I asked, and so I notified Mr. Stewart. Seeing the kind of building that Mr. Stewart erected on his lots, I do not know if he seriously entertained my proposition to join him in the enterprise. But he was by no means the great merchant that he afterwards became, and neither of us then thought, probably, of the gigantic enterprises we were subsequently to undertake, and the great things we were to accomplish. Having completed my business arrangements in New York, I returned to England with my wife and daughters, and hired a house in London. My house was the scene of constant hospitality which I extended to my numerous friends in return for the many attentions shown to me. It seemed then as if I had more and stronger friends in London than in New York. I had met and had been introduced to almost everybody who was anybody, and among them all, some of the best soon became to me much more than mere acquaintances. Among the distinguished people whom I met, I was introduced to the poet-banker Samuel Rogers. I saw him at a dinner party at the residence of the American minister, the Honorable Edward Everett. The old banker was very feeble. But careful nursing and all the appliances that unbounded wealth could bring still kept the life in him, and he managed, not only to continue to give his own celebrated breakfasts, but to go out frequently to enjoy the hospitality of others. As we were going into dinner I stepped aside so that Mr. Rogers, who was tottering along leaning on the arm of a friend, could go in before me. When Mr. Rogers said, "'Pass in, Mr. Barnum, pass in. I always consider it an honor to follow an American.' When our three months' engagement at Egyptian Hall had expired, I arranged for a protracted provincial tour through Great Britain. I had made a flying visit to Scotland before we went to Paris, mainly to procure the beautiful Scotch costumes, daggers, etc., which were carefully made for the General at Edinburgh, and to teach the General the Scotch dances, with a bit of the Scotch dialect, which added so much to the interest of his exhibitions in Paris and elsewhere. My second visit to Scotland, for the purpose of giving exhibitions, extended as far as Aberdeen. In England we went to Manchester, Birmingham, and to almost every city, town, and even village of importance. We travelled by post much of the time, that is, I had a suitable carriage made for my party, and a van which conveyed the general's carriage, ponies, and other such property as was needed for our levies and we never had the slightest difficulty in finding good post horses at every station where we wanted them. This mode of traveling was not only very comfortable and independent, but it enabled us to visit many out-of-the-way places off from the great lines of travel, and in such places we gave some of our most successful exhibitions. We also used the railway lines freely, leaving our carriages at any station, and taking them up again when we returned. I remember once making an extraordinary effort to reach a branch line station where I meant to leave my teams and take the rail for rugby. I had a timetable and knew at what hour exactly I could hit the train, but unfortunately the axle to my carriage broke, and as an hour was lost in repairing it, I lost exactly an hour in reaching the station. The train had long been gone, and I must be in rugby where we had advertised a performance. I stormed around till I found the superintendent and told him, I must instantly have an extra train to rugby. Extra train, said he with surprise and a half sneer. Extra train? Why, you can't have an extra train to rugby for less than sixty pounds. Is that all? I asked. Well, get up your train immediately and here are your sixty pounds. What in the world are sixty pounds to me? when I wish to go to rugby or elsewhere in a hurry. The astonished superintendent took the money, bustled about, and the train was soon ready. He was greatly puzzled to know what distinguished person, he thought he must be dealing with some prince, or at least a duke, was willing to give so much money to save a few hours of time, and he hesitatingly asked whom he had the honor of serving. General Tom Thumb We reached rugby in time to give our performance, as announced, and our receipts were a 160 pounds, which quite covered the expense of our extra train and left a handsome margin for profit. When we were in Oxford, a dozen or more of the students came to the conclusion that as the general was a little fellow, the admission fee to his entertainments should be paid in the smallest kind of money. They accordingly provided themselves with farthings, and as each man entered, instead of handing in a shilling for his ticket, he lay down forty-eight farthings. The counting of these small coins was a great annoyance to Mr. Stratton, the general's father, who was the ticket seller, and after counting two or three handfuls, vexed at the delay which was preventing a crowd of ladies and gentlemen from buying tickets, Mr. Stratton lost his temper and cried out, BLAST YOUR QUARTER PENNIES! I am not going to count them. You chaps who haven't got bigger money can chuck your copper into my hat and walk in. At Cambridge, some of these undergraduates pretended to take offense because our taker would not permit them to smoke in the exhibition hall, and one of them managed to involve him in a quarrel which ended with a challenge from the student to the taker, who was sure he must fight a duel at sunrise the next morning, and as he expected to be shot, he suffered the greatest mental agony. About midnight, however, after he had been sufficiently scared, I brought him the gratifying intelligence that I succeeded in settling the dispute. His gratitude at the relief thus afforded knew no bounds. Mr. Stratton was a genuine Yankee and thoroughly conversant with the Yankee vernacular, which he used freely. In exhibiting the General, I often said to visitors that Tom Thumb's parents and the rest of the family were persons of the ordinary size and that the gentleman who presided in the ticket office was the General's father. This made poor Stratton an object of no little curiosity, and he was pestered with all sorts of questions. On one occasion an old dowager actually said to him, ''Are you really the father of General Tom Thumb?'' ''Wow,'' replied Stratton, ''I have to support him.'' This evasive method of answering is common enough in New England, but the literal dowager had her doubts and promptly rejoined, ''I rather think he supports you.'' In my journeyings through England, I always tried to get back to London Saturday night so as to pass Sunday with my family and to meet the friends whom we invited to dine with us on the only day in the week when I could be at home. The railway facilities are so excellent in England that no matter how far I might be from London, I could generally reach that city by Sunday morning and yet do a full week's work in the provinces. This however, necessitated travel Saturday night and while I traveled, I must sleep Sleeping cars were, and I believe still, are unknown in that country, but I traveled so much and was, by this time, so well known to the guards on the leading lines that I could generally secure one of the compartments in a first-class coach to myself, and my method for obtaining a good night's sleep was to lay the seat cushions on the floor of the car, thus, with my blanket to cover me, making a tolerable bed. End of chapter 14, part 1. Recording by Matt Benzing, Oxford, Ohio.